The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or to view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. So we'll start with the uh, thermal IR camera. Uh, and as you can see, it has uh, very strange properties. Uh, who's, who are we looking at here? That's you. <laughs> and then as it turns on, it's uh, lighter. Uh, it goes in an automatic, uh, automatic game more, I guess. And the rest of the image gets very dark. And uh, who's in the picture? Can you wave? Oh, that's Seth. Excellent. I thought I could recognize you in, in thermal IR. Uh, and if you just put a cold finger on your on your cheek, you can see it. And take it off. Yeah, you can see the mark. Um, things that are completely transparent in uh, in uh, visible are actually completely opaque. In focuses. Really opaque. Actually, if you just put your glasses down, you will see that as well. You won't see, well, yeah, but I, others will see. Yeah, I won't see. Anything. <laughs> so they are completely <laughs> opaque. In uh, in uh, these are actually glass lenses, not plastic ones. There might be some difference. Okay. I don't know, um, so it's really looking at looking at uh, uh, about eight thousand nanometer to twelve thousand nanometer, which fortunately is also the wavelength in which. You know the human body's um, the black body radiation of a human body is uh, peaks. Um, so you can do some amazing things with this. Uh, uh, Chrysler and BMW uh, are thinking about, or maybe some already put them in uh, in um, uh, in automobiles so that you can see things very far away. So one benefit of this, as you can see, is even if you turn off the room light, the intensity will not change. So somebody wants to take the. It's completely independent of the room lighting, right? So because it's it's not looking at the visible spectrum that's being emitted by uh, these tube lights, uh, but it's a function of uh, just uh, thermal radiation. So at night when you're driving, if there are any uh, animals or or even intruders. Uh, in your backyard, you can detect them with uh, with thermal IR. There's a lot of reflections on the table. Yes, yes, because remember, this is a very large wavelength. So at that wavelength, the table's roughness disappears and it becomes highly reflective. Um, is this last time I tried to focus on things went wrong? Yeah. All the people with glasses look very cool. <laughs> <laughs> What is the lens made out of? So that's a good question because uh, a, a typical glass will not transmit right, thermal just, IR. We showed, yeah. Yeah, that's a good demonstration. So a lot of these lenses are made up of germanium, mm -hmm. um, and also certain types of, types of plastic mm -hmm. can be used for for this. But the image quality is not that great. Mm -hmm. uh, but germanium is very common. Does this have different focal characteristics because it's such long wave, such long wavelengths? It has, uh, you mean, 8 to 12, in, it, just in terms of the ratio. So it's mm -hmm. like 
300 to 400 is the same as 8 microns to 12 microns. Mm -hmm. So um, so it should be able to focus in the majority of that uh, of that uh, band. Uh, but um, um, because you need a larger lens, uh, the depth of it is pretty narrow. So you know, with this you can build a glass detector. You know, if I look outside the window, for example, it's completely <coughs> opaque. Can you wave, glass person? Yeah. So the, it's completely opaque, the glass. Uh, so you can you know you can build a glass detector. You can take a photo with a visible regular camera and take a photo of this. And if it's opaque in one but transparent in the other, then you know that's glass. So you can do all kinds of uh, interesting things. And again. If Matthias is successful and other companies are successful, uh, not in five years, but in six years, it <laughs> might be in your in your cell phones. Thanks a lot, Hiro. All right, so let's continue here. Has anybody seen this snake illusion before? Yeah. Do you, does everybody see uh, rotating snakes? Yeah. No. No. I think it would be like head on for it. Yeah, it doesn't work. At an angle? Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah. All right, maybe I can. How many of you can see it? How, can you, how many of you can see, and how many cannot see uh, a rotating pattern? So, okay. I, I've, I've, I've heard this before, because this is different than those really annoying you know, random dot stereograms, the magic eye, that a lot of people have trouble seeing. But this is not based on the same principle. It's based on a different principle. It's just looking at the, the, the decay in your, in your retina, how long it takes for your retina when it's doing circuits to uh, basically do center surround subtractions. So it's a very different principle. So uh, those of you who cannot perceive motion and this one. Do you also have problems with magic eye? Yeah, I can't see the magic. Yeah, I think magic eye is probably a lot, lot. How many people have problems with magic eye? Yeah, I think that's that's a lot. But so it looks like that the, the the two sets don't have any relationship. Two subsets. So how can I take a photo of a scene that has motion, print it on a piece of paper, and create an illusion of motion? That's a research problem for your project. <laughs> yeah, but that's only for this particular scene. I want to take a photo of a car moving or somebody running, and I just want to take a couple of maybe a five frames of that video and create one photo out of that so that it looks like the person is constantly moving. I think we can put on the lights again. Um, let me see this. So, all right, here was that question, and how can I look around a corner? So this is actually a, a huge project in our group uh, of how can you look around a corner, and uh, the way we do it is we actually use some really cheap devices about um, a so-called transient imaging camera where we use a impulse response of a scene. We, we transmit a signal. Maybe I'll use a little pointer. Uh, we transmit a, uh, a very tiny pulse, which reflects off of the door, uh, you know, bounces around inside the scene, reflects back from the door, and it is captured back again at the camera. And by analyzing this multi-bounce reflections, 
uh, we can figure out what's inside the room by just looking at the door. Uh, so the devices are extremely cheap. We need a femtosecond laser that costs <laughs> about $200,000. Um, and we need a photo detector that costs about uh, $3,000, but we found some cheaper versions. And then we also need a, a, a 10 gigahertz scope that's about $50,000. So, you know, after about quarter million dollars, uh, we can look what's <laughs> around the problem. So, uh, maybe not in five years, but maybe in 10 years or 20 years, uh, you will have devices which will allow you to look around the corner. And right now in our lab, you can do it. And this is going to completely change the way we think about photography. Because line of sight is you know, almost a fundamental assumption. We think it's almost, a lot of us think that's one of the laws of physics. We can only see things that are within the line of sight. Uh, but you know, we are not violating any laws of physics. If you're violating the laws, you're welcome to report us. Uh, but <laughs> this, is, this is possible. So throughout this class, what you'll see is that the laws that you take for granted and the laws that uh, are shackling the way you think about visual capture and visual displays are just, you know, just there because, you know, somebody taught you that. Uh, but you can challenge all those assumptions with modern tools, whether they're sensors and optics and modern computational uh, methods. What's the point of the femtosecond laser if it has such a short coherence length? It, you mm -hmm. can't really be using the, the laser so the reason why you need an extremely short duration um, laser mm -hmm. is that if you just imagine you build a camera. So th those cameras, this uh, mm -hmm. time of flight camera that uh, Jay was showing, uh, emits a pulse uh, at about 50 megahertz. So it, um, it's 20 nanosecond repetition. And light travels how much in one nanosecond? One millimeter per microsecond. Yeah, but that's too complicated here. How many, how many, uh, how many, uh, how much in one nanosecond? About a micron? No, much more. More than that? Uh, a foot. Yes, foot. Right? That's right. That's right. Okay. So, oh, very yeah. simple thing to remember. Right. Light travels one foot yeah, in one nanosecond. Uh, and what about sound in, 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 uh, at room temperature? How much, how much does it take for sound to travel one foot? You, you know all the numbers. It's 330 meters per second for 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 uh, for sound and three times 10 to the eight meters per second for light. But that's too complicated to think about. We want some simple rules of thumb. So 10 milliseconds. 10 milliseconds for one foot. It's one millisecond, right? So very easy to remember. Light travels one foot in one nanosecond. Light uh, sound travels one foot in one millisecond. So light travels one nanosecond, sound travels one millisecond. Uh, unfortunately, there's nothing that travels in one microsecond. If somebody came with a new physical uh, propagation, uh, physical propagation channel that travels one foot in one microsecond, rather than milli and, and nano, then you'll see a completely new range of applications. So you have electromagnetics, EM spectrum, that's one nanosecond for one foot and sound one millisecond for one foot. So sound is too slow and light is too fast <coughs> in almost everything we want to do. <laughs> um, and so here, uh, we want something that's even faster than traditional light propagation. So if I, in this room, if I just 
send a beam of light, very narrow pulse. By the time it goes to that wall and comes all the way back to me, let's say this is about 20 foot, uh, it's going to take me about 40 nanosecond to come back. Uh, on the other hand, if I just want to see, you know, where, you know, where, where somebody's within a couple of feet of that wall, then I need to start measuring in picoseconds, not 10 to the minus 9 seconds, but 10 to the minus 12 seconds. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why you need to do that extremely fast to be able to do any... Um, so a traditional time of flight camera will just look at this door, and that's it. There's nothing more you can do. But if you want to look at interreflections, then you need to be able to resolve time at a much higher uh, temporal resolution. Uh, so femtosecond lasers are not something, I mean, they're not exotic. They're used in OCT, they're used in two-photon microscopy, and they're used in a lot of other applications, but still not consumer applications. They're used in medical imaging. Uh, and once they become solid state and easy to carry, uh, we can do that. I mean, a uh, lot of LIDAR also happens in not femtosecond, but nanosecond ranges with very high power. So uh, if you can look around a corner like this, what about looking around a, uh, a beautiful uh, artifact like this one? You know, if I have a bottle, where's my bottle? You know, if I, if I as, as, a, as, a, as a human, when I look at this bottle, I look around it and I create a mental representation of what this looks like. But if I capture a photo, it's going to be only from a single view, it's going to mimic my you know, perspective and so on. But my mental representation is actually something like that. Right? So how can we build a camera that takes an object and creates uh, a rollout imagery? Like that? Now this particular object is straightforward. I can just put it on a flatbed scanner and I can just roll it. Uh, but some other objects are not so easy. This object, for example, which is not completely cylindrical, has, uh, you know, uh, doesn't have a constant radius around its axis of rotation. So if I just roll it on a flatbed scanner, I will not get that. So maybe I need a special camera uh, or I can use my existing camera and use some interesting tricks, computational tricks, to create rollout imagery. Another research problem. Um, and I would, I'm sure a camera company would love to have this feature as you know, you have all the boring features, AV, TV, panorama, movie, and then you have rollout mode. So that would be fun. Um, and maybe you can do it with an ordinary camera, or maybe you can do it with a do it with a femtosecond laser uh, if you have quarter million dollars. All right, so let's do a very fast-forward preview of the rest of the class. And uh, here I'm mostly going to talk about what's the input, what's the output. Uh, I may not go into the detail of exactly how this works because, again, these are teasers of what's coming in the class. And what I would like you to uh, think about. Uh, during this uh, preview is how this applies to some problem you may be already working on or what are some parallels with things you already know. Uh, and again, most of these techniques will be about changing the rules of the game. If you're doing, if you have a project where you're tracking your fingers with a you know, cheap webcam and it's not working because when the light changes or person with a different skin color uh, walks into the scene, there are solutions here. Uh, if you're, you're worried about how to track crowds, there are solutions here. You want to see you know, what's behind a glass that's murky and diffuse, there are solutions here, uh, and so on. Uh, and there, of course, there are uh, really interesting devices that you could use in new forms of photography. 
So um, here's a really simple example of, of how we can get started. So uh, Paul Haverly uh, in 92, simple idea, take an object, turn on the flashlight on the left, turn on a flashlight on the right, uh, and then you can form this image by combining these two. How would you do it? This, this looks like a blue light and this looks like a red light. Just from these two input photos, you want to create this one. Yeah? Just mix the channels. Exactly. Just take the blue channel from here and red channel from here. That's it. And creates this beautiful relighting artifact. So that's going to be actually your assignment number one. Just a warm up assignment. Uh, all you have to do is take an object and uh, take two or three photos by moving your light source um, and then mix and match the color channels to create very beautiful color artifacts. And this will help you to, um, you know, get your whole pipeline for rest of the semester going. You will have your own camera. You're welcome to use your, you know, regular camera, like even even cell phone camera. But ideally, you should start using a camera that has more manual controls. Um, and it will get you set up with your MATLAB or Java or Flash, whatever you want to use, uh, C++, OpenCV. Um, uh, there's a lot of easy ways to do this, but I would like you to use, I would like you to set up your 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 environment so that this type of operations are very easy to do. And that will be your uh, assignment number one. Let me step forward. Um, of course, this is what you would do at home, but if you have a couple of million dollars, uh, then this is how you would do it in the Hollywood. So this is a project from uh, Paul Debevec and his group, a really excellent set of work where they're building different light stages. Um, and uh, instead of turning on one light at a time or moving uh, it, it, it manually, uh, they have a dome with about 150 lights. Uh, and then they use a high-speed camera here uh, and turn on one light at a time so they can photograph this actress under 150 lighting conditions in 150 frames very quickly. And then I can start from the beginning and, and so on. That's one way to do it. Um, the other way to do that is, let's say all you want to do is insert a, uh, this actress uh, in a scene that may have been shot somewhere else. So uh, she's in LA and you want to insert her uh, in a, uh, on top of a photo that was actually taken in Milan. Now, if you just take the photo and superimpose it, it looks very fake because the lighting doesn't match up. So the trick they use is, uh, you know, some guy puts a shiny sphere uh, in Milan and takes an environment map of that courtyard. Uh, then you feed this image onto these lights. So if the left corner is reddish, the the light at uh, on the left is left side of this dome is is reddish. Uh, if it's yellowish here and so on. So for all this four pi, uh, you turn on the lights correspondingly, and now she is bathed in light as if she was in that courtyard in Milan. And now if you take her photo uh, and cut out and superimpose on that uh, background, it will look more realistic. Uh, and they have done videos where they took this uh, shiny spheres, um, and Christmas is coming up, so you can pick up your, your shiny spheres, um, and you just put the shiny sphere and move in the, in the courtyard with it. So you're, you're constantly capturing the environment map as you move along. And 
in the scene, she just stands in one place, uh, but the dome is lit up by the environment map that was captured from these shining spheres. So in a video sequence, it appears as if she's walking through this environment. At least she's lit up as if she's walking through this environment. So you know, these are some of the tricks that are being used currently in, in, uh, in major productions. So Matrix, uh, all the movies that came uh, in, in the last 10 years or so are using this particular mechanism to um, create mats that have correct um, lighting, match lighting, sorry. Um, and if you don't want to spend uh, $2 million back to something, something really cheap, uh, you can, to create the silhouettes and so on, you can use a multi-flash camera. So here are some cameras that you can buy. Uh, this is, I believe, a Lumo. Yeah, this is a Lumo. So I think it's about $30. And uh, what it does is, let me see if it's... Did the lights go off? So when you release the shutter, it uh, we're too cheap to put the film inside, so that manually <laughs> move it around. I think we're out of battery here, unfortunately. Uh, but anyway, when you release the shutter, it takes four photos by exposing one pinhole at a time, and at the same time, uh, because it cannot recharge the flash that quickly. The simple solution was to actually put four different flashes. So this shutter goes off, then this light goes off, then this shutter goes off, this light goes off, and so on. So it takes four pictures. Now, instead of putting the lights all in one place, if you place them around the camera, uh, you can do something interesting. Uh, when the flash is to the left, you know that we get a we get a very annoying slivers of shadow in, a, in, a, in an ordinary photo. Now, if you intentionally place the flash, so you can see it here. So there are all these slivers of shadow at depth discontinuities. And you probably see it in, in your own photographs. Uh, if you place the flash intentionally to the right, then the slivers move to the left. If you put the flash at the top, the slivers are sh shadow slivers are at the bottom, and, and so on. So by taking these four pictures and analyzing those tiny slivers of shadows, you can figure out where the depth discontinuities are, <coughs> where the foreground is separated from the background. Not just the whole person and the wall behind them, but also any internal changes. So if my hand here, it will create a boundary between my hand and, uh, and my body, no matter how close or how far uh, I am from, from that. So uh, by, by doing that, uh, you can estimate all the shape contours. And this is the edge map you would get if you had an ordinary camera. Uh, and this is the edge map you get with a multi-flash camera. So now, if you have an application you want to track a hand or track a gesture, instead of taking a standard 2D image, if you take a multi-flash image, you'll get very clean contours. And, and from those contours, you can build an HCI application that will perform very well, even in strange ambient light. And again, it's independent of the, the color of the, the foreground object. It only relies on the shadow. So again, if you want to hand track a hand, you're not dependent on the skin color anymore. So you can play these tricks to uh, overcome the limitations of a traditional 2D camera. 
another assignment we'll be looking at is this virtual optical bench. Uh, and this is a very nice toy that Andrew Adams at uh, Stanford uh, put together, which is a flash-based application where you can insert lenses and, uh, and occluders and mirrors and uh, ray emitters and, um, and so on. And you can basically do a very quick setup, uh, very quick optical design of, of a setup. Um, and what we'll do is we'll start with this. One option is to start with this, uh, his code, his source code, and modify and insert a few more optical elements, maybe a prism, uh, maybe a grating, uh, and so on. Okay. This will be one option. And as I said, you'll have multiple options for each assignment. So uh, thinking a little bit more about lenses, uh, one concept will we'll come across quite a bit in this, uh, in this class is light field. And now this particular camera that we saw, 5 of 5, uh, that Rourke was showing us uh, is actually a light field camera. But that's made up of an array of cameras, physical cameras. And what we're going to do instead is we're going to take an ordinary camera and convert that into an array of virtual cameras. So this is an array of physical cameras, but it's expensive. Instead of that, we'll take an ordinary camera and convert that into an array of virtual cameras. So this is how it works. You have, in a traditional uh, camera, you, if the object is in sharp focus, the, the radiance along each of this direction uh, is convergent on a single pixel. So you get a very sharp image of that point. But any information about the radiance along each of these directions is completely lost. Okay? So you get a 2D image. You have a 3D scene, you get a 2D image. So it's flattened. The world is flattened. Um, a, a trick you can do, which was actually invented by uh, Ted Ellison and, and his student Wong, that just left, uh, is uh, trying to capture the radiance along each of these directions. Um, so how do you do that? You just displace the sensor a little bit back. And in front of that, you put a micro lens array. This is the same micro lens array you use in lenticular displays, you know, those displays that change with uh, viewpoint and so on. So uh, if you put that micro lens array, then as you can see, each of this ray is actually incident on a different pixel. And then you can capture the variation along each of the incoming rays. Now, why would you care about capturing uh, each of these rays? It turns out that an appearance, the appearance of the world coming through a lens can be completely described, geometrically completely described by a four-dimensional function, which is this light field. Uh, and that's a very powerful concept because if you do capture this full representation, then you can do, and that's all you could ever capture. Uh, once you have this 4D representation, you can manipulate that in many interesting ways. So Ted Ellison and Renning uh, at Stanford, who also has a company now uh, called Refocus Imaging, uh, are building this type of cameras with, uh, with lens led arrays. Now, how did the Stanford team do it? Uh, they started with a medium format camera, uh, with a uh, 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 digital back, and on the digital back, they put this micro lens array where the pitch of the micro lens is 125 microns. So pixels are about nine microns. So under each square tile, they have about 14 by 14 pixels. 
Uh, and by, so again, going back here, under each micro lens, they have a 14 by 14 array of pixels. So what they're going to do now is they're going to take the 16 megapixel detector, 4,000 by 4,000 pixels, um, and have 292 by 292 pixel array, sorry, uh, micro lens array, under each micro lens, 14 by 14 pixels. Okay. So at the end, they have this one, they have this one 16 megapixel image, which after uh, reshaping gives you this 292 by 292 pixel image, one under each micro lens. Okay. So we have given up a lot of resolution from 16 megapixel, we're down to 292 by 292. Okay. But with that, we can do some amazing. We can do some amazing things. We can do digital refocusing, completely in software. Okay. So you have given up a lot of resolution, but now you have complete control over where you can focus. And as you can imagine, uh, this is the same question you asked earlier. From this, I can also estimate depth, because depending on when things come in focus, I can assign a depth to each pixel. So. Suddenly from a ordinary 2D sensor, I have a camera which has how many virtual cameras? Here we have five by five. How many virtual cameras here? 14 by 14 cameras. What is that, 228? No, 196. But each camera is 292 by 292. Exactly, it's very low resolution. And uh, so, first kind of complaint is, yes, it gives you all this power, but very low resolution. And the argument nowadays against that is, whether you have six, mixel, six megapixel camera or a 16 megapixel camera, it doesn't really matter. You know, we have reached, uh, you know, we have you know diminishing returns after six megapixel. So, why not use those pixels for capturing some other information? So, that's what makes it extremely powerful. Um, and refocusing is only one. Depth sensing is another. Interaction, uh, dealing with aberrations in the scene, a lot of interesting things you can do. And again, this is starting with a static 16 megapixel camera, so it's not video rate. Uh, but well, this one is video rate, although it's only 25 virtual cameras. Is the you could you could do that. Unfortunately, the precision that you require is you know is is a micrometer precision, so it's a little bit challenging. But you're right. I mean, I'm sure when cameras were designed in the beginning, they had physical apertures that couldn't be changed, and over time people figured out how to create variable apertures and so on. So creating these dynamic elements is going to be the key for future cameras. Um, and uh, people often ask me, what are you know, what are the things that are that you're going to see in the camera next? And you know, we already have high dynamic range, next is color, and we get a lot of you know, journalists asking questions like this, you know, uh, the future of photography, you know, a lot of, lot of uh, popular magazine with a lot of junk in it, uh, in, including, <laughs> including uh, people who are not credible, uh, with, picture, with pictures in there. So to me, the answer to that question is light fields. That's going to be the next big thing. Uh, if you think about the top five features that will appear in a camera, it's exposure, color, number three is light field. So we'll see how long it's going to take before we have a full-fledged light field camera as a consumer device. 
Um, and again, initially they're going to say, hey, but it's only 292 by 292 pixels. But my guess is that by then we won't care about the, the pixels, number of pixels. So uh, we, uh, my group was extremely inspired by this work in 2004, 2005. But we thought this is very challenging to create because you need a micro lens array. Uh, so we said, instead of using a micro lens array, can I just print a transparency at home and create this light-filled camera? So that's what we did, uh, which is called a mask-based light-filled camera. Um, and this is how you do it. You um, start with a medium format uh, camera, in this case, uh, Amamiya. Uh, and on the digital back, you just remove the IR filter. Um, and it turns out there's already some glass on top of the sensor, which is about 1.2 millimeters thick. So you just drop a transparency uh, on top of it, uh, snap back the IR filter, uh, and that's it. For about $2, you can convert a medium format camera into a light filled camera. And the design looks something like this. Traditional camera, traditional sensor, but about one millimeter in front of it, you have a printed mask. Very cheap. Using that, we're able to convert uh, this 2D camera into something that captures a 4D function. Um, and the concept is actually very similar to uh, radio frequency heterodyning. The reason why you can listen to multiple radio stations uh, on a single antenna is because all those stations are transmitting using either amplitude or frequency modulation. And then in software in your car, you can tune into any one of those channels and decompose uh, and decode any one of those uh, radio stations. And what we're doing here is very similar. We are doing that in optical domain, and that's why we call it optical heterodyning in space, not in time, where you have the object, it's forming an image on the sensor, but we're going to take this photographic signal, which is four-dimensional, not two-dimensional, um, and use this carrier, um, and then create a modulated signal. So again, for those of you with a communication background, uh, this analogy will work. And then in software, knowing this carrier, we can demodulate that and recover this four-dimensional light. Curve. So it's possible to do it with a very low cost. Uh, sorry, can you hit the lights in? Yeah. yeah. Maybe the other one. Thanks. Uh, and this is a photo that we capture with our mask-based light field camera. If you zoom in, it has the in-focus parts are actually okay. The out-of-focus part has this really strange encoding because of the high frequency mask. But then in software, it turns, and this is, the, this is how the mask looks like, uh, the printed mask. And in software, it turns out that by applying uh, appropriate signal processing uh, framework, we can decode that and recover it. So this is a 2D frequency transform of a traditional photo, where most of the energy is in the baseband. Um, and after applying this very high frequency mask in the optical path, it actually encodes this information in, uh, in this particular case, a nine by nine uh, uh, windows of the, of the Fourier transform. Um, and this intentional aliasing or heterodyning allows you to capture the additional two degrees of freedom. Uh, and so the process is very simple. You take this photo, which is about four megapixel. Uh, you take its 2D Fourier transform. You reshape that to a 4D, Fourier, 4D function. And then you take the inverse Fourier transform to create this 81 virtual cameras, in this case 9 by 9. This was 5 by 5, this is 9 by 9. 
and uh, the best way to show that is to see how that photo will look like when there's a small parallax between each of the virtual cameras. Uh, and again, from these 81 images, you can estimate depth, you can create refocused images, and all that. The same thing that uh, Roth was showing for refocusing from here to infinity, yeah, I guess infinity, uh, back and forth. So you can do that with an ordinary camera uh, with this uh, a small change uh, with mask. And all the software is online. And this will not be part of any assignment, but you're welcome to take that up as an assignment or as a project. Maybe we can get the lights back again, sorry. Um, what are some other things you can do? Um, as I said, uh, in terms of the desired camera features, it's dynamic range, color, and then light fill. In terms of color, uh, uh, Ankit Mohan, who's a, a scientist in our group, uh, uh, that was this part of his thesis, he said, let's think about color as not multispectral imagery, uh, but more like an audio synthesizer. You know, if you have an audio system and you're listening to rock or jazz or pop or, uh, you know, country music, uh, you tune your bass and treble accordingly or maybe you have a profile so that the, the, the frequency profile or of, your, of your synthesizer is appropriate for that particular type of music. The same thing should be possible for photography as well. If you are in, a, in, a, you're in the woods, you would like to look at most of the green channel to see how the variation of different leaves and, 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 and uh, uh, you know, all the nature is, is captured with sufficient variation. Maybe you don't care so much about reds and, and blues there. Uh, on the other hand, if you are uh, near an ocean, maybe you mostly care about the blue shades uh, and so on. So what I would like to do, and photographers do this all the time, you know, they carry a set of filters with them, and if they are uh, if they are looking at broad sunlight, they put one type of filter. If they are on a beach, they put another filter, and so on. What I would like to do is create a knob right on the camera, just like an audio synthesizer, that says boost red, suppress green, and you know, create any profile you want. So creating this programmable wavelength. Uh, would be extremely powerful. So Ankit's project basically achieved that, which he calls agile spectrum imaging or programmable wavelength uh, imaging. So it's a very powerful concept, and hopefully it will appear uh, in, in cameras as well. You can imagine this is very useful for medical imaging. Uh, you know, when you go to the dentist and they're putting uh, uh, what's it called, enamel, to change the color of your tooth. The, the, the whitening. Uh, yeah, the whitening. What is it called? Enamel. Bleach, yeah. yeah, and you know the, the problem with that is, in in the in the the dentist's office, everything looks fine, but you know you go elsewhere and somebody takes a flash photo, and the, the guy with the teeth, uh, fake teeth or, or or bleached teeth, you know, looks looks extremely different, and that's metamer because the wavelength profile of a flash is very different from wavelength profile of tube lights. Uh, so what doctors would like to do is see the neighboring teeth under all different lighting conditions so that they're still matched, mm -hmm. for example. And this is true of, uh, I did show you the vein viewer where you want to see the veins uh, and depending on oxygenated or deoxygenated blood, you know, the hemoglobin, you can figure out which veins should be used to poke the needles. Uh, and again, that can be looked into very narrow wavelengths. So they don't know, a priori I mean, in that case, they might know, but in different applications, they may not know a priori which wavelength you should be looking at. And so by creating this programmable spectrum camera, you can do, uh, again, very interesting things.
So we'll be looking at that. Glare is uh, another challenging problem, right? If you have a bright sunlight, uh, it's creating glare. Sometimes it's for artistic effects, sometimes it's just annoying. Um, so can you take a photo that has uh, this concentric rings because of glare um, and either boost the glare, you know, create some cheesy effects like it's a rainbow transition here from blue to red, uh, or actually suppress that glare. Again, all from a single photo. So it turns out glare can also be captured using a light-filled camera. Uh, if you have a bright light, such as this, uh, um, let's see, this is a bright light and this is some other scene, the bright light will create a sharp photo, but because of interreflection, the frontal reflection in the lenses also create a glare effect and contributes to the wrong part of the image. But again, what we will learn in this class is that by doing this 4D sampling, you have complete control over the lens flare and certain types of glare. Um, uh, this again, light field concept for uh, camera array. Stanford and Professor Mark Lavoie are, are the world leaders in thinking about light fields and, and light field cameras. So they built this amazing uh, um, uh, camera array, the electronic storage, optics, and so on. In this case, I believe about uh, 51 cameras uh, and then they can do very interesting things. So here's a scene. You have about 51 cameras looking at the at the um, um, a scene with behind the behind the um, uh, bushes and, and trees. And uh, this is how it looks. Uh, focus on that part, and by doing refocusing, you can see what's behind those trees. So this is just you're just doing virtual refocusing in the scene. Mm -hmm. um, and by doing that, by using an extremely large aperture, you can see what's behind this, uh, this bushes. And this is pure refocusing. You can do additional computational techniques to recover what's behind the trees. Uh, so a lot of things in computational camera and photography are, are really about magic. <laughs> uh, you know, how can you look around a corner? How can you can look behind the trees? How can you look inside the body? Uh, and, and so on. So that's why I like this field. It's, it's like magic tricks. And somebody shows, once in a while, you come up with your own magic trick. Uh, and every, some other times, people show you a magic trick, and different people figure out you know, different ways of achieving the same magic. Uh, and that's why it's such a vibrant new field. Uh, the way synthetic aperture works is you know, the same way if I, if I hold a needle next to my eye, not poking my eye, but just right next to my eye, then if I focus on the needle, I'll, I'll see it. Uh, but if I focus far away, uh, then this needle just becomes blurred and this does not occlude, occlude what's behind. And the same concept is for synthetic aperture. It's used in radar, it's used in astronomy, uh, and all you have is an array of, um, array of um, uh, receivers, whether it's antennas or whether it's uh, microphones, whatever it is. In this case, cameras, array of cameras. Um, and if you have a very, very large aperture, then a point that was occluding some point behind ends up being extremely blurred. So it does not impact what's behind that. Uh, if you have a very narrow aperture camera, you cannot do that, but you can do that if you have a very wide, very wide aperture camera. So we saw that. Okay. So what about 
medical imaging, such as computer tomography. And uh, now we're jumping from photography to tomography. Now, both are recording. One is recording light, the other one is recording slices. It turns out you can use very similar principles. So what's happening in tomography? You have an X-ray source that's emitting in an omnidirectional fashion, uh, and you have uh, detectors here uh, that are, uh, should I use this screen? Because most people are, which, which screen is better for majority of people? That one? Yeah, Sorry. All right, I'll use this one. Sorry, Doc. <laughs> This one was convenient for me. Um, you have an X-ray source and you have an array of detectors. Uh, and basically, when you put your head inside this uh, X-ray source, X-ray and the tomography uh, CAT scan machine, the X-ray source spins and the detector moves in the same direction. Right? Um, and let me show you a video of how this actually this actually works. Let me start from the beginning. All right, it's been opened up, so you know what's going on. That's what's happening. Imagine your head is inside that. All right, that's what CAT scan machine is doing. And while, you know, they put an eye patch and you're just resting inside. It's basically a jet engine. It's totally crazy. Okay, it's totally unnecessary. You know, we're in the 21st century. <laughs> we're in the 21st century, and we're building this, you know, devices that are based on, you know, 40-year-old principles. It's unbelievable. It's it's totally ridiculous. What we need to do is completely rethink how this imaging is done, and use new computational methods to overcome this totally bizarre you know, multi-million dollar devices. So that will be one of the things we'll be learning in, in this class, how we can take principles from signal processing, photography, scientific imaging, and kind of mix and match them to build uh, new things. Borehole tomography, another very interesting problem. Uh, all you do is you create, um, you know, you drill a hole, uh, you put explosives here, and you put sensors here, or in this case it's audio, and then you fire off these bombs effectively, and based on how long it takes for sound to travel to these detectors, tells you what the density of material, whether it's rock or oil or you know other types of formations, uh, and from that the oil companies can figure out if you know what type of oil there is and where it is. So you can create a 3D map of what's inside. Again, multi-billion dollar. Uh, situations. Uh, microscopy, deconvolution, also used in photography, also used in uh, machine vision, computer vision. We'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, coded aperture imaging, an idea that was used in astronomy uh, because uh, astronomy you're looking at gamma rays and x-rays and you cannot build lenses for them to form an image. So you can either create an image with a pinhole of the sky or you can use a coded aperture so you can collect more light. Uh, now that idea, we'll, we'll, we'll learn about that, uh, can also be used for photography. So what our group did was we used a coded aperture in the lens. Instead of having a clear disk-like aperture, we put a, you can barely see it, 
uh, I'm sorry, I'm supposed to go this way. <laughs> uh, you have a, a coded aperture which looks like a, a, a crossword puzzle shaped uh, mask. And from that you can take a photo, again which could be out of focus and then digitally refocus that. So this is, you know, out of focus photo, this is in focus photo and you can capture, you know, the glint in the eye or even a strand of the hair. Again, very minor change uh, to the camera. And if you, originally we were talking about, uh, you know, successful biological vision, uh, if you think about the simplest possible uh, uh, biological vision, which is a single pixel detector in a worm, right? just a single pixel. Um, it's, you know, in, in muddy, mashy waters looking for food or maintaining its orientation. Um, it doesn't need a full-fledged camera. It just has a single pixel detector. It just knows if there's light, there's no light. If there's light, how much light there is. So you know when it's, when it's day, when it's night, which way is more light, which way is less light. But even that single pixel detector has some very interesting optics in front. It has this very intriguing shielding pigment in front of it. Um, can anybody guess what's the reason for that? How does it benefit to have some random pigment that's blocking the light from different directions? For like orientation. For orientation. So if this worm wants to maintain an orient, if there's a light source, uh, and if the sensor was hemispherical, then if this worm moves a little bit, there will not be much change. But if you have a very high frequency pigment, if this worm moves even a little bit, there will be a big change in the lighting. Right? It's look as if you have a very high frequency mask and you're looking at the sun. As you move, you know, the light goes up and down. So the worm knows that as long as it's maintaining the same level of light, it's maintaining its orientation. Right? That's all it needs to do. Does it also increase the effective dynamic range? of its sensor it's as possible. a kind of like neutral density filter along certain directions and less it's possible density, yeah. it's possible maybe when it, maybe when it's looking in one direction it's too bright mm -hmm. so it tries to block that we don't know and if you read uh, this book there's a beautiful book called animal eyes mm -hmm. uh, by land and nissan uh, which will be we'll, we'll have a whole class on animal eyes i think it's the seventh class if i remember correctly uh, and we'll discuss all different types of animal eyes and and why they do it whether it's eagles or land creatures, underwater creatures, worms and all that. Um, and frankly, most of this, um, uh, most of these uh, biological visions, visual systems are based on hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And they're verified in a, in a very, a very um, uh, scientific, but at the same time very primitive equipment. And one of the great projects would be to take some of these worms and put it in a controlled lighting setup to really verify if this is how they work. Mm -hmm. That will be a lot of fun. Um, I'll, I'll provide the words, don't worry. <laughs> uh, so, you know, this cold aperture is, you know, somewhat similar. Um, let me skip over this part because we talked a little bit about how to use mask. All right. Wavefront coding. Uh, this is a concept that was uh, invented by Cathy and Dowski in 1995 uh, for shaping light or shaping the wavefront of incoming light. So you have a traditional imaging setup, you have an object, you have a sensor, you have some lenses. What they proposed is placing 
an additional optical layer in between, uh, which is not a lens or a prism, but has variable thickness or variable refractive index. Okay? The simplest way to think, of, to think about that is the light in the top part might travel at one speed. Remember, if you have a, uh, a glass with uh, glass with different thickness or different refractive index, uh, the light is going to slow down. Right? And when it comes out on the other side uh, in air, it again go back to one foot per nanosecond. Nanosecond. Very good. Uh, but before that, it's going to travel slightly less than one foot per nanosecond. Right? If it's 1.5, it's going to travel, you know, one, one by 1.5 of foot per nanosecond. So anyway, so by adding glass of different thickness or different refractive index, each of these rays are going to be slightly out of phase with respect to each other. So when they combine on the detector, they will either add inter, uh, add um, they will interfere and add constructively or destructively, and from that you'll form new images, right? So this is how they explained it. Uh, and if you read the papers, unfortunately, they are very difficult to understand. Uh, and what you'll realize is that instead of going into the math of Fourier optics and so on, in this class, we will use very simple ray diagrams and understand how this works in a very visual manner. Okay. So basically what wavefront, camera, wavefront coding camera does is in a traditional camera, uh, rays converge to a single point and you get a sharply focused image. So if the camera goes, if the sensor goes in and out of focus, you get a large blur. In case of wavefront coded camera, actually you don't, you never get a sharp spot. What you get is basically think of taking a lot of straws and instead of all of them converging to a single point, taking them and then twisting them so that they go out again as the straws, but in between there's a, there's a, there's a part where all of them are, uh, the cross-section of them is roughly equal, okay? And by doing that, it turns out for, for sufficiently long, uh, sufficiently large depth range, and the defocus is equivalent. And we'll study this in detail on how this works and how you can use the same techniques for new types of photography and scientific imaging. Now, this is also a very hot topic in night vision goggles, by the way, where they want to uh, wear night vision goggles that look, when you look far away, they're, it's very clear. And again, night vision goggles have very large apertures. And when you look closer, if you want to read a map, for example, it should still be in focus. So how do you, how do you create a, uh, a passive device that can focus at infinity and very close up at the same time? And they have been using wavefront coding uh, as well. Wow, I can barely see this. All right. Uh, this is this is a project called Decoding Depth via Defocused Blur. This is from Colorado, from Rafael Pashtun and, and Yoav Chetner. Um, and this is very counterintuitive. Uh, if you take a, a point light, and uh, I wish I could do this experiment. I can, I can do it here, but it'll take some time. If you take a point light and form an image on, on this particular guy. Please. Do you want a little flashlight? Yeah. Thanks. So, uh, as you can see here, that's the image plane, right? As I move it in and out, its shape is going to change. The spotlight. Now, imagine, and that's what happens in the in the bottom part of the image. 
as you are in sharp focus, you get a small spot. As you go out of focus, you get a bigger disk. But the kind of optics this group designed, when you are in focus, you see two spots that are left and right of each other. And when you go out of focus, these two spots rotate in one way or the other way. If you are closer than plane of focus, it rotates in one way. If you are away from out of focus, it rotates the other way. So this rotational point spread function is a very powerful concept. And right now they're using in microscopy for resolving fluorescent beads at uh, nanometer precision. Uh, but it could also be used in photography. Nobody knows how to do it. You know, this could be one of the research projects. Uh, and we have, we can, we can get some of these prototypes from from our colleagues. So it's a lot of fun to play with. Um, another interesting thing we'll, we'll be looking at is relationship between. We, uh, uh, Fourier optics and ray optics. Now, you know, in high school we were taught, you know, there is particle and wave duality and a lot of confusion and, you know, we have to write, you know, in high school we have to answer questions of what phenomena can be shown by in particle way and what can be shown in, in, in uh, using the wave propagation model and one of the standard answers was, oh, if there's interference or diffraction, then it can only be explained with Fourier optics, not with uh, particle nature of light. That's, you know, too simplistic. Uh, it turns out that you can really show that they are the duos of each other um, and explain diffraction and interference and all these mechanisms using purely ray propagation. And so with Sebaik, his name is not here, Sebaik O and George Barbasis's whole mechanical engineering, we have a project where we have created a so-called <coughs> augmented light field which can actually support all the wave optics effects as well. So traditional light field that we just described earlier, where you can capture with an array of cameras uh, and so on, can do this uh, position angle representation, uh, the four-dimensional representation. And at that time, I made a claim that if you can capture this 4D incoming function, you have captured everything, everything geometrically that has come through the lens. So it's a complete representation of the light. And some people would say, wow, but then you're not capturing the phase and you're not capturing all these other things. But it turns out that using the same exact setup, you're also able to capture phase. The 4D representation actually includes the amplitude and phase of the incoming wavefront. And so we, simply by using different mathematical terminology, we have, uh, Augmented this light field representation to also represent to also model uh, wavefront effects. So we'll, we'll study that um, a little bit. Uh, what about photographs like this? Uh, if you look at this heater, uh, it's creating these beautiful streams of hot air. Um, also, this uh, this uh, lamp from the lampshade. Again, we are trying to visualize that cannot be seen in the naked eye. So this is known as the Schlieren photography, which is again looking at very minor changes in the optical path. In this case, because of heat, uh, if you're if you're on you know on a on a hot day on a on a highway, you see the mirage, uh, but that happens extremely high temperatures. Now, even at not so high temperatures, you can actually capture this mirage and create very beautiful photos. So this is student photography, and we'll be studying that. Uh, polarization is, is beautiful. Uh, you may have used polarization for taking 
photos of the sky or uh, on water, but underwater photography can be dramatically improved with uh, polarization. So we'll, we'll study that. Uh, we'll also study some new type of sensors, not just two-dimensional sensors, but this other sensors, uh, as, I, as I said. Uh, single pixel camera, uh, compressive sensing. Uh, how many of you have heard about compressive sensing? Right. There's, a, there's a lot of hype about it. And again, if you read the papers, um, sometimes it's very difficult to follow uh, what exactly they're trying to say and, and how it's done. Uh, but as you will see in this class, uh, you'll get the whole idea of compressive sensing in less than five minutes. Uh, and we'll go through what works, what doesn't work, uh, and actually Rohit is working on a project which shows that, hopefully will show that uh, compressive sensing is actually not such a great idea for imaging, but it is good for something else. And we'll study what that something else is when he and Ashok's project is uh, uh, reaching some uh, mature stage. So very exciting ideas there. Uh, so the original idea was to create a single pixel camera. Instead of creating a megapixel camera, you have a single pixel that's uh, going to take a coded combination of incoming light. So this may be a scene, it's being focused on the whole uh, reflected uh, mirror array, and you're just going to flip this mirror on and off. So the light you collect will be a product of the scene with this uh, vector. Uh, and if you change these flips, you get some other sum. You're going to take a linear sum of incoming light. Uh, and if you take millions such measurements, you can reconstruct uh, a megapixel photo. But the claim of this group from Rice is that you don't actually you don't have to actually take a million readings. You might be able to get away with only 10,000 or 100,000 readings. So you can capture a megapixel photo with possibly only 10,000 pixels of a camera. Um, and we'll we'll look into that and what part of that statement is true and what part of the statement requires more analysis. And you'll also see that this can be used in a lot of uh, other situations. So for example, my group has built a, um, um, a strobing camera that can be used for Lagrangioscopy, uh, where in a traditional Lagrangioscope, you use very high speed strobing to slow down, the, to, slow down to visualize the motion of, of uh, vocal force. Uh, but we just came up with a new method that is dramatically simple and uses dramatically less light. So you don't burn your throat when the doctor is looking at uh, your vocal force. And that's based on uh, compressive sensing. So let me stop here because we're almost at 4.30 and we'll, we'll come back and uh, we'll come back and look at some of this, uh, some of this uh, other projects. So these are the kind of project assignments you will see. Uh, relighting, the first one that I already described. Dual photography where you can read your opponent's card. <laughs> uh, virtual optical bench, light field capture, uh, high-speed imaging, thermal imaging, uh, multispectral imaging, range imaging, uh, and so on. And then a completely open-ended uh, final project, which you can choose in any area. Uh, this is the first assignment. The instructions will go out uh, on the Stellar webpage. Please make sure you have uh, um, uh, the sign-up sheet. Has, has it gone around? Okay. Please make sure your name and email is on the sign-up sheet. Uh, if you don't get an email from me by Monday morning, please send me an email, which means that I could not read your email address correctly. Uh, 
So yeah, this will be some of the some of the assignments you'll be doing. And this one is due on September 25th. Um, and every class we're going to, starting from next class, we'll have a volunteer who takes notes for the class and posts it. Uh, because a lot of our discussion is going to be on the board and so on. I'll send out specific instructions. So we need a volunteer for next week. You want to do that? Yeah. What's your name? Sam. Sam. All right. Sam is going to the volunteer for next week, and we'll decide who's going to do that. Uh, uh, nice to meet you. Yeah. Um, are you planning to leave it last Sorry? Probably not, because most of the people are going to be, many people, not most, but many people are going to be listening. So as far as I know, it's not going to cross the, the limit. But, but if there is, there is a cap. I don't think it's going to reach the cap. So. There's a cap of 30, so I don't think it's going to reach the cap. And we'll see some of these demos next time. <laughs>